I have so much trouble talking about race and ethnicity with him, she said to my mentor. I just don't know where to begin, she went on. I mean, I guess race is still a problem, but it's only a problem when we keep talking about it. The conversation continued. Can't we just talk about race and racism or whatever the issue is without the anger? Can't you just separate that? This conversation took place with a former supervisor of mine, who, in all regards, is an internationally recognized speaker and author and is considered a ministry expert. And while white women tend to be able to better understand the plight of ethnic minorities better than white men, the difficulties of privilege, ignorance, and personal racial neglect cannot be overlooked or avoided. This conversation took place with another good friend and mentor of mine when she intervened in a conversation about race I was having with my boss. At this point, I was still young in my career, and like many blacks in all white environments, I had to choose my battles wisely. The slightest move toward a threatening posture could ruin not only my career, but also my reputation. I was walking a thin line, but I could not take this racism and racist overtones anymore. I had had enough. I needed to say something. So after careful thought, counsel, prayer, and preparation, I decided to talk this over with her and asked a witness, my mentor, who was also a woman, to be present while this conversation happened. I'm Daniel White Hodge, and I am the host of the Profane Faith podcast. I've been reading an excerpt from my book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context, out of chapter eight, Beyond Reconciliation in the Wild. If you're interested in more of that, go on to whitehodge.com, that's whitehodge.com, and check out this book and see what I'm talking about a little bit more as it pertains to race, church, and particularly where we find ourselves at right now at this apex in the Trumpster era. I don't answer questions in terms of providing answers. I don't give a five-step methodology to fix things. Nah. I just go in straight up and sound the alarm. We in some deep shit, y'all. So if you're interested in reading more about where we, how we got to that and where we are right now, check out Homeland Insecurity, whitehodge.com. Come on now. He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important. And to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, y'all. What's going on out there? Podcasters in podcast land, profane faithers. How you doing another week? Another battle, another day, another week. <laughs> How y'all doing? Y'all doing good? All right, all right, all right. Well, um, this week, I'm, uh, man, there's a lot going on this week. Man, it just seems like every week, y'all, right? <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a trip. It's a trip. I've been, um, 
been enjoying the other podcast that I'm a part of. So if you haven't had a chance to check out the podcast called Oh My Wednesday, myself, J.R. Foresteros, and Kate Sanchez, both of who have been on the show extensively, uh, we all co-host a show on the American Gods television series. Now, the American Gods uh, television series on Stars is in its second season, so we uh, did a whole um, episode, week by week, episode by episode, um, podcast for season one so you can go back and check those out but i've been enjoying conversations with them in regards to the show but not only that beyond that just you know what what do american gods look like right how do we define new media how do we define um what we look at all the time one of the gods media played by uh, jillian anderson in first season talks about how you know she has worshipers coming to her every day Right. Uh, and and uh, oh, man, there's so many overtures and nomenclatures that I think that are important that we begin to kind of unpack. Now, you know, this is not a family. You know, you don't want your kids coming up to this. I think uh, first season that they broke a record that there was uh, they had never had that many erect penises shown on television. That wasn't a rated X uh, uh, or double X. <laughs> Um, television series so you know if you uh you got sensitive eyes to all that it's probably not a uh a show you want to go right into but whoo it breaks down some stuff y'all getting in there with gods and how the gods always want something and they just mess with people uh and you know so that they will give them attention and whatnot oh it's 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 deep it's deep. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to, uh, and again, if you don't have stars and you're just like, oh man, I can't afford stars, man. I feel you. I, I We all chipped in. Well, really, JR is the one covering the stars bills so that we can see the series. Uh, so, But if you just want to catch up on some stuff, oh my Wednesday, I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, check it out. It's really, I, I love the conversations we have. And I think, you know, we you know, were able to explore, you know, all aspects of intersectionality and uh, particularly with having JR and Kate as co-host and, you know, providing all three different um, perspectives. And those two are just, man, those two are just amazing when it comes to uh, pop culture. JR is so well-read and Kate provides so much insight on just aspects of pop culture. She was just at South by Southwest and, um, you know, got a chance to see um, all kind of uh, actors from the, from the movie, from our, from the television series itself. And then uh, she was also able to see a couple of other movies that are even out there, like La, La, La Llorona, um, that movie's not even out yet. And she's already engaged with it. So check it out. Oh, my Wednesday. Um, this week, man, I, uh, man, I had a lot going on. I had a, um, well, it's advising season where I'm at right now. So if you listen to this in real time, you know, at my institution, we're, we're advising students. So, you know, folks come in trying to graduate. Um, you know, I always try to advise students to, you know, do the hard stuff up front, right? Do your GEs, do, you know, your stuff that you don't want to do, do it up front so that when you get to your senior year, you can just skate, right? Just take some fun classes, take some basket weaving courses, take some, you know, uh, underwater uh, toenail painting courses, you know, all them things that you could take in your senior year. But I find often than not, um, students just, they just don't. And they, they you know, if they don't want to take a math class, for example, they just put it off, put it off, put it off. And I've had students where they've actually gotten to the semester they're about to graduate. So it's it's like March. We graduated in May and you still ain't took your math course. Right. Um, so if you're a student out there, uh, do your advisor a, a favor. Do just, you know, they they most of them, not all of them, but most of them tend to know what's what's up. They tend to offer good advice. I know there's bad advisors out there, but uh, I ain't one of them. 
<laughs> um, so I'd say listen to them. I try to, like I said, I try to help folks out. But, you know, along with that, I can't just stop folks from sharing stuff about life and trying to engage. And, uh, you know, when you give and uh, give and and I don't want to act like, oh, man, it's just I mean, I know I get it. People who who work with other people, that's just part of what we do. Um, there's got to be time to recharge. Um, that's part of what the weekends are for me um, and part of, you know, what I take from that. But this week also involved me Going and sitting as an outside um, reviewer for a dissertation that was being finished up. And it was just a trip. Um, one, to be back in a Seventh-day Adventist environment. Um, as many of you know, I come. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. And, which, by the way, another plug. You know, if you want to know more of my story, go back to season one. Um, episode one is my story. So I go in on it. And then I think the extended version is actually on SoundCloud. Because uh, it came out to be almost two hours, and I was like, "Oh man, I can't air a two-hour show." So I edited a whole bunch, and then but the extended ones on SoundCloud. So if you got time, you want to just get all up in my business, episode one, uh, season one. But uh, yeah, my roots are in the Adventist faith, and so it's just interesting to go back and hear some of those, uh, some of that discourse in in regards to that. And you know, I was cool. I had my evangelical language on. It was cool. Um, I actually thought somebody was going to call me the day before and said, "Hey man, we got to receive." in the, the invite you know, somebody somebody read your book or somebody heard your podcast and you know that uh, that's that's it you know you you got you guys to go but uh they didn't and i was there and it was cool uh it was a panel of all white men and um myself and uh no women except the the, the brother man's wife who was there who was he was defending and his wife was there so it's just interesting just to be back in that environment again um it, it's interesting, I, you know, and I asked, I was like, you know, how did, how did y'all find me? But I guess the brother man who's doing his dissertation uh, read my book and, you know, saw that I was pretty close in terms of uh, distance and proximity. And so I was able to come out. And so it's interesting, man. This cat's got a, a, a job waiting for him, man, too. That's the other thing I think is interesting. Um, yeah. I, oh, man, there's so much when it when it comes to adjuncting and again if you know me you know i did 10 years 425 miles a week 12 13 classes a semester six seven instances god bless it man i'm glad i'm not doing that anymore um and i don't know anybody who wants to do that they'll do it but they'll do it because they have to survive or they have to pay bills and so it's just interesting to hear this cat you know we were walking uh we were to a celebratory lunch that uh, that we were doing and i you know just chopping it up with them and saying you know hey you know what are your thoughts on um you know teaching and all that good stuff you're heading in the academy he's like oh yeah man you know i'm gonna start teaching you know this fall i said like, wait when you graduate and he's like yeah here you know this summer and everything i said like, wait so you got a job waiting for you god damn um of course i didn't say it like that you know i said it uh you know nice evangelical lee uh you know i was like oh the golly you know what i'm saying like, wow you know some shit like that but <laughs> at any rate it's just a trip man to see folks and just not even aware of man the struggles i mean i write at least a month three to four sometimes even five to seven um, recommendation letters for folks to get hired on tenure track and this is consistently uh and i'll do it i keep doing it um I, I i don't have a problem doing it my point is is there's a lot of great people that are out there on the job market um and a lot of them are people of color right with great ideas great thoughts great processes great published you know i'm in the same environment that that i was in right and 
it just it just got me. It just got me. I can't, you know, I got to be honest. I mean, it was just like, wow, this cat, you know, is going right into a tenure track. You know, he will never know. You know, and part of it is, is like, you know, I don't know if he'll never know, ever know the the struggles of of uh, of being an adjunct and, and what that means, you know, to go and apply. I mean, at one point I applied to over 300 positions, um, you know, and I got what one interview out of all that. And 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 then another letter that said, no, we're 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 just not looking for you. <laughs> right. I mean, people don't that you receive so many applications that, you know, you can't even respond to them. I remember one position I applied to, you know, the the opening time was like at four o'clock and I was like, oh man, I'll show up at five and, you know, I'm, I'll be ahead. And, and as I walked in and I was saying, oh, you know, how many applications just out of curiosity? And they're like, man, we already got 300. 300 applications in one hour. So, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there was a, there were a couple of articles that came out this week on, on higher ed and just the, the state that it's in and i've said it for a while now that um you know things are going to be changing i you know in, in for higher ed and you got this whole scandal that's going on or that happened and it's still going on I mean, it's still going on in various ways right um and, and they're white so it's just like of course you know they're not necessarily going to get you know they're going to get a slap on the wrist or a fine that they can pay you know and, and life will go on um but i'm wondering i wonder what the state of education is um, going to be and what it was going to look like, um, especially since so eth- many ethnic minorities have gone now to it. Will it become the equivalent of a high school diploma or 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 even worse? Uh, you know, you have to you know, your bachelor's is just another four years of required school. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It used to be a time, you know, I, I grew up in the tail end of the era where you could still graduate high school and go get a decent job, you know, and that be your job. Right. Um, that don't happen anymore. Um, it just doesn't. I mean, of course, they're very ex- extremely privileged. So it's just some, it's just some crazy things that are happening. So, you know, that just kind of struck me. It just and again, I wish I wish this brother all the luck. I don't wish adjuncting on anyone. I just find it interesting. The racial dynamics that happen with that white folks groom their own. Um, that's why I don't feel bad when, you know, I am I'm able to help out folks either monetarily um, or by a journal article or something, because it, it, these are things that white folks have been doing for a long time. And the institution of higher education, as is all institutions here in the United States, for the most part, that are, you know, that are up there and, and out there are designed by white folks. I don't get me wrong. I know I can hear somebody say, yeah, but what about the, you know, the NC or NAACP? And, you know, what about some of these other black ones? I get you. I got you. I got you. I'm, I, I'm not. That's why I said it wasn't all of them. I say most of them. Here we go. Most of them. Um, the of the organization the systems that have been set up have been designed for whites in mind, and we've had to adjunct ourselves, you know, into that or or graft ourselves in a certain way into an organization, right? We have to speak a certain way, we have to talk a certain way. We always defer to whiteness as a person of color. Always, there's always a conversation that other people of color are having around white folks saying, "Okay, don't say it this way, don't say it that way," you know, "Don't, you know, don't." Don't beat that way. Oh, if you say it that way, you know, you could get fired. And then said, so they were always deferring to whiteness. Whiteness, whiteness, if ever. Whenever, when I say whiteness, it's not just always white folks. <laughs> it's a lot of times white folks, but it isn't always white folks. Okay. Whiteness is also the cultures. You know, remember, like I've always said, you know, to be white, to be white. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, people, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's just a trip because whiteness rarely, if ever, defers and says, oh, how can we think of this or how can we, you know, how can we uh, uh, better say this or better, better attract more ethnic minorities? Right. Um, this last week, uh, if you're following, I haven't I've yet to see the movie Us. 
So don't tell me about it. I want to go in fresh. So nobody be sending me no DMs and saying, hey, this is what happened to us. I ain't, I'm going to go. But Jordan Peele, the, uh, the writer and director, um, came up and was, you know, in an interview. And he said, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be casting um, a white person in the lead role because, you know, we've seen that story. We've heard that story. We've 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 been a part of that story for a long time. And of course, folks lost their mind. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe that's just discrimination. And here's the thing, y'all. The narrative, the meta narrative that we have been sold as a country, uh, as a people here in the United States is that everybody is on an equal playing field. That's the first lie, right? This is mythology, this mythological imagination that says we can make it on meritocracy alone. You work hard and you can become anything, right? Um, that's the second myth. Um, that's the second myth. And sure, we have some people, we have every now and then the people that make it and stuff. And that's why I don't necessarily, you know, get advice from athletes and the athletic world tends to be very binary in nature, right? You do this and you get this outcome and that may work in a certain situation, but you can't apply that to real life situations. Real life is too complex. It's too muddy. It's too, it's too messy to be able to say, oh, you do this. And if it doesn't work out, don't question the methodology. You question yourself, right? So meritocracy, everybody's on equal playing field, right? Those two myths. And then the third one is really that, you know, discrimination is bad and we should all look at people for who they are and judge them by their character. That those are all bullshit lies straight up. And, but we've internalized those things, right? Everything we do is, is about that, right? The narrative that you hear from American Idol or uh, who wants to be any, any of the shows that you see on television, right? All of them are still engaging in that narrative that, oh man, you can come and you're here and you're living your dream and you work so hard. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. But what about the other 500, 5,000, 500,000 that are, that are trying to do the same thing, right? Um, and so... It's, you know, when Jordan Peele says this, that internalization kicks in and we think, whoa, 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 you know what I'm saying? And part of it is, is that whiteness creates its own spaces, recruits its own folks, uh, capitalizes on its own achievements and on its own uh, uh, quests and conquerors, um, conquering, right? It's, it, and, 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 and then mystifies the process as if it's not really even happening. So that when somebody like Jordan Peele just calls it out and says the truth, we're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that. That he is such a racist. He has, oh, I cannot believe that. Meanwhile, we haven't said anything about no Steven Spielberg, right? He tried to act like he's friend with all the niggies, you know, but as he cast a, a serious role for a person of color, right? We still have issues where we talk about folks, right? I mean, it was one of my problems even with this last episode of the American Gods. We finally get an indigenous guy from Native Americans, right? First peoples, first nations. And who are they? Oh, they're played by two white guys. See? Stuff like that. Stuff like that, right? And though that's the type of crap right there drives me up a wall because, again, the narrative is like, oh, we're all created equal, all created equal. No, Peel, Jordan Peel is just telling the truth, the double truth, Ruth. And when most ethnic minorities call out stuff, it's like when we call out sexism, it's just like, oh no, 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 that's not happening. Yeah, it is. It's been happening. <laughs> okay, it's been happening, and. We have got to be again to destroy. I love what Killer Mike says in his uh, his Netflix series. Uh, um, 
a trigger warning. You know, if, if, if there are things, if they're not uplifting black folks, if they're not uplifting people of color, we have got to kill them. There's a whole episode on killing your gods. And not the literal god. Don't get all you get, don't get your undies in a bunch. He's talking literally about those things that hold us back. And there's a lot. There's a lot. So it those are some of the things that I've been kind of just thinking about and wrestling with and, you know processing all that good stuff um that you know a brother does and so by the end of the week i was like whoa i'm tired <laughs> i'm tired but uh man this week's guest uh is somebody i've had on before brother uh reverend dr ephraim smith uh he and i co-lead a doctor of ministry program uh through fuller and uh it's an all black doctor of ministry program and let me just tell you all this I, and here's the thing I, i'm gonna make a plug for this because we're, we're actually recruiting now for the new cohort um Everything we do is black. The literature is black. Uh, we require all of our students to interact with black, black thought, black, black theologians, black theorists. We require that. So um, they ain't no whiteness up in there. <laughs> it's almost like, man, how the hell did Fuller allow that? Well, we have, you know, our offsite meetings. We have one meeting in Los Angeles, one in Chicago, one in Atlanta. Um, new cohorts are going to be starting in 2020. And... Um, I, I believe there's a little bit of scholarship money. DM me and we'll, we can talk about it. Uh, send me a message. You can go to whitehodgepodcast.com. Send me a message or whitehodge.com. Send me a message. We can talk more about it. But it's a doctor of ministry and uh, it's a doctoral program. And uh, this last cohort was was great. And we had a chance to really do things the way we wanted to do it. And it just so happened, you know, coincided with the... Um, you know the trumpster election and so that helped kick kick off some rich dialogue uh and you already know me if you've been following me on this podcast you already know me i i like to push the limits so we went in we talked about issues of gender and sexuality we talked about issues of popular culture you know how does the black church deal with the lgbtq uh, uh community uh and engagement with that and so i have my man darren um who calhoun who's been on this show before uh come and talk to this class uh i've had my man um brother john gill who's been on the show come out and talk to the class i had uh Doc, reverend dr Velder love so if you're listening dr love i don't think i've had you on the show yet no i don't know why i did i did when we were talking about i think james cone um and so she's been on the show she came out uh as well so we had some amazing folks come we had some amazing conversations and uh i was very thankful to have that from smith around and we tried to have a really good balanced reading uh both men and women uh, i also threw of course some non-binary authors in there as well to again stir the pot so that we can have a nice understanding of what does black church leadership look like in the next 10 years that's a question i'm i am really wanting to explore because um I, you know, I don't I don't have a lot of high hopes when folks just get up and hoop and holla, you know, and do the whole drum dance and everything like I hear you. I grew up with that. But is that really transforming communities? Is that really, really helping people better understand, you know, some of the racial politics and politics of of interrogation of whiteness? Is that really helping people, you know, push past that? I don't know. So it's just a little plug, just a little plug. Just going to say it. I'll put the links in the show notes. You can check it out. 
uh, holler back at your boy, you know, if you have questions specifically. Uh, so, but Ephraim and I have been uh, friends for a long time. Uh, he actually knew my wife uh, before me. They were in a prayer group back in the Twin Cities. Uh, Ephraim, and he's, uh, man, he's an internationally recognized leader. Uh, he's a motivational speaker. Uh, he preaches a lot. If you've ever heard him before, you already know uh, this thing. Uh, he consults on issues of multi-ethnicity, leadership, community development. He's the former uh, president and CEO of World Impact. In fact, the last time we had a conversation, uh, he had just uh, left that organization. So if you haven't heard it, I'll put this, the links in the show notes as well. Uh, to our first conversation back in season one, uh, which was it, it still remains one of the uh, most downloaded and, and played uh, episodes. So I'm I'm thankful for that. He's currently a co-lead pastor at Bayside Church Midtown. He's the author of several books, including his latest Killing Us Softly. Uh, Pastor Smith, he's a graduate of St. John's University in Luther Theological Seminary. He received an honorary doctorate of ministry from Ashland Theological Seminary, but he's finishing up his uh, doctorate of, of ministry or his doctoral program in church leadership over at Fuller as well. Uh, he's married to Donisha, has two daughters, and, uh, you know, he's out there. He's doing his thing, man. I, I always appreciate Ephraim because Ephraim walks a line that I cannot walk. It's been said before that uh, there are three major themes of figures that emerge, you know, throughout the, the you know, our, our sacred texts. And that is of a queen and king, a prophet, prophetess, um, and a priest or priestess. Uh, he's a priest. I would say that definitely. Uh, he's got that calling. And I don't have that calling. Um, I, as much as I want to fight it, I fall into that prophet account. Uh, and um, definitely not a king. Definitely not the politician. Um, but he has a particular calling. And he's able to get into spaces and have conversations with people um, that I just could never. I, I couldn't be the president and CEO of some all-white organization, right? <laughs> I just couldn't. Especially all-white organizations that think they're doing, you know, good for the hood and whatnot. I'm just like, ah, nah, that ain't me. I'd piss everybody off, <laughs> right? But he can do that. And we need people like that, y'all. We need people like that. So I was like, man, um, let's sit down and have a conversation. This was actually recorded while we were doing our cohort uh back in august and i just got around now to playing the uh, getting to get into that interview because i was like man we, we need to have this conversation get it out there and so um yeah ephraim's a great brother good friend um and uh you know us co-teaching we've been we've had a chance to grow together um and to push each other uh as we're thinking through uh church leadership and it was really good to have him as a co-leader uh because i'm in the classroom i'm an academic i bring the theory i bring the method i bring the stats and he's able to bring the pastoral part to that. And that's a good balance um, uh, to that. And he's able to really help better understand, you know, help students better understand what, you know, what does that pastoral piece look like uh, while we're grappling with some of the aspects of theory and research uh, that is out there. So I'm excited uh, to have this conversation here on Profane Faith with Brother Ephraim Smith back again. Check it out. And once again, Holla back at your boy, whiteodgepodcast.com. Here's Ephraim and I speaking. Check it out. And post, I'll, uh, I'll take the, all that stuff will be out. Oh, okay. It'll sound like we right in the studio. 
cool. <laughs> All right, man. Well, brother Ephraim Smith, man, welcome back to Profane Faith. Oh, man, I'm, I'm privileged and honored to be back. <laughs> oh, man, round two up in here, man. Yes, sir. Um, Well, brother, let's let's hit the ground running since I know people got to know you the last time you were on the show. And if you haven't, go back to season one, uh, episode Three, I think you were on episode three. I believe that's yeah, true. Man. Yeah, man. And uh, yours is actually still one. I think yours is like the second or third most still downloaded, man. So, oh man, I'm uh, I'm I'm hopeful that you will uh, gain even more downloads on this one. Um, so what are you up to now? Last time we we left you, you were you were still working as a as a president of an, an organization, and yeah. So I was serving at the time as president of World Impact, and since since then I've transitioned to leading, uh, well, being the co-lead pastor of Bayside Church Midtown in Sacramento. Okay. And I'm also a co-founder of Influential LLC that uh-huh. is about disrupting the status quo by equipping leaders and organizations to influence transformation, empowerment, reconciliation. Dang, man. Dang, dang, dang. And so, so okay, so, so with the LLC... What's that all about? Like, you said empowerment. So what does that look like, man? Yeah, well, one, it was to um, really leverage my platform as a speaker and preacher and author to um, hopefully ignite a movement eventually of speakers, of life coaches, of consultants that uh, run the range of how organizations, pastors, and leaders can be empowering leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, lead empowering organizations. Uh, You know, a a lot of people are rethinking uh, what leadership looks like, what what staff teams look like, and people are going a little flatter. And so, you know, I want to help pastors. I want to help nonprofit leaders, business leaders understand that um, there is a way that you can flatten your organization, that you can actually uh, circle up that organization and (laughs) still uh, lead and serve and coach and mentor and, and thrive and, and bring about change and meet results. And so I want to go from just preaching and speaking about empowerment and transformation and reconciliation to actually, uh, providing strategy, providing leadership Mm. models and principles so that, uh, churches can see that when you empower the people, yeah. Uh, and they become the vessels and the vehicles of justice and unleashing compassion and transformative love and reconciliation that includes justice, hmm. that that's going to make uh, the church and other faith-based organizations and, and even businesses mm-hmm. uh, more more fruitful, uh, more faithful to their mission and purpose. Man, so I like, so you said, so reconciliation with justice, break, break that one down a little bit, man. Cause I yeah. know, you know, the whole reconciliation thing and, you know, but break that down a little bit, man. What, well, what, is, what does that look like for you? Yeah. Well, you know, well, I, I came into uh, the theology and the practice of reconciliation, um, reading Dr. John Perkins, mm-hmm. you know, years ago, and then later Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil yeah. and um, uh, Dr. Curtis DeYoung and uh, Dr. Alan Bosak from mm-hmm. South Africa. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that hit me is that um, DeYoung and uh, Salter-McNeil's writings really began to uh, unpack biblically uh, and even philosophically, that you can't separate reconciliation 
without justice, especially if the reconciliation is is race based, mm-hmm. uh, when there is a dominant group that historically has been in power and has been yeah. the dominant group. You 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 can't reconcile when the playing field is not level. Hmm. You can't reconcile when there isn't equality uh, in the space where you're seeking reconciliation. And um, even what we learned through the writings of Alan Bosak and and reading about Nelson Mandela's in South Africa, there couldn't be reconciliation uh, when one group was in a state of power and it was an, impre- an oppressive power uh, against basically the native people of that land, of that country. And mm-hmm. so um, that pushed me back to go back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s writings and speeches, because a lot of times we think that, you know, in the in his writings and in and sermons about nonviolence, mm-hmm. we, we paint Dr. King uh, as being so much about love, which he was, that we forget about that he actually was trying to bring justice to the table yeah. so that the beloved community could exist. Yeah. And then that pushed me, you know, to to black th- liberation theologians like J.D. Otis Roberts okay. in his book, you know, Liberation and Reconciliation, okay. where he argues that, yes, I'm open to reconciliation, uh, but there there can't be uh, reconciliation without liberation, without right. justice, without dealing with the structures and systems uh, that are dysfunctional and divide and oppress. Yeah. So, so that's why... Um, for me, especially, and the opportunities that I have to uh, coach pastors, uh, to talk to leaders and church staff about what it means to become a multi-ethnic, missional, uh, you know, multicultural church, I, I'm trying to push people beyond kumbaya, right, to compassion, right. mercy, and justice. Yes, and uh, or uh, we miss an essential piece of what the gospel is about. Man, well, I, I mean, I find that interesting. I mean, because it's like this this era that we find ourselves in, I mean, there seems to be this, this engagement with a popularized version of justice, right? It's like it, it sells books, it, it writes some conferences, it creates a kind of buzz link. What does reconciliation look like pragmatically, living in this era when we have the presidential administration that we have, you know, in the, in the white house, you know, there's still a majority of white evangelicals who support him, um, in his, we'll get to the black pastors at the table here in a second, but what does when reconciliation is, is looked at as like you said, the kumbaya or it's, it really subverts blackness and really still continues to elevate whiteness. So what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, and let me you know just share for people that um, are meeting me for the first time through this podcast that uh, you know I I co-pastor a church in Sacramento that is very diverse. It's thirty five percent black, thirty percent white, twenty uh, percent Hispanic, ten percent Asian, uh, the rest other, and it, it, you know it's in the heart <laughs> yeah. of one of the most you know. People think of L.A. and the Bay Area when they think of California, but Sacramento truly is one of the most multicultural, diverse cities in America. 
And so yeah. uh, I co-pastor w- with a brother, Bob Ballion, mm-hmm. who's Armenian, and, and his wife, uh, Letty, was born in Mexico. And so, um, you know, even the relationship that he and I have yeah. as, as co-leaders and co-laborers it is to, to model uh, what it means to be in a reconciling relationship, but also to keep it real and, and to lay out the key issues that you have to work through when you're co-laboring in a racialized society. Yeah. And so, um, so I, so I'm, I'm speaking from that vantage point, but also speaking from the point of being, um, you know, raised up in the black church. Uh, and so when I think of reconciliation, in a in a in a let's just say in a general sense politically from the african american perspective okay there have been african americans that have had a heart for reconciliation mm-hmm. and have had the proximity to influence a president you think of um frederick douglas and Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. Uh, think of Martin Luther King and President Kennedy and President Lyndon Johnson. Right. Right. Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. had a heart, a message, a strategy of love and reconciliation, beloved community, mm-hmm. but he still knew how to be a prophetic voice that brought an agenda for liberation and transformation, mm-hmm. equality, and a dismantling of oppressive systems and structures into mm. the political space. Okay. So, I, I, you know, so for me, uh, you know, I, I don't think people would paint me as an activist. I think activism is a needed thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's a good thing. I, I'm not saying that I uh, condone all forms of activism, sure. but I believe there is a need for activism yeah. when a nation needs to be pushed mm-hmm. to its best ideals, when it's uh, practiced various forms of being a nation through the structures of education or the arts or government or, or the business sector. And there's been fault. There, hmm. There's been ought there. There's been injustice. Yeah. There's, there's been uh, a contradiction to what it means to be in this country. I think you need a reconciling and prophetic prophetic voice mm-hmm. in the political space to push a nation hmm. towards what it could be when it lives below what it says it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, that makes sense. You know, there are people that talk about America being the greatest nation on earth. And, you know, maybe that's true, but I, I would go, there have been too many moments when the United States of America has lived below greatness <laughs> yeah has, has 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 been looking up at greatness not resembling greatness hmm. and so um you know my kids won't fulfill their greatness potential if they're not pushed 
and if they're not critiqued and and if they're just coddled and and petted yeah. Yeah. and just said oh you're so great oh you're so great <laughs> and i and i feel like we're at a moment as we've been probably through the beginning of this nation where we'd rather be petted and coddled hmm. over greatness than prophetically pushed and challenged hmm. towards a greatness that propels this nation into a more authentic realization of equality in the pursuit of happiness. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, this is, you know, as we're, as we're talking about this, I mean, what do you believe that's achievable? I mean, I, you know, we've been, we, for those of you listening, brother Ephraim and I have been hanging out the last, you know, few days. We've been teaching this doctoral cohort. It's around the time we did this last year as well. You, we were, you had just gotten through teaching or I got through teaching. I can't remember. Um, and so we've been having these conversations about life and everything. And so my prediction, I hope I'm wrong. And I hope somebody's listening to this later and being like, man, you were wrong. See, is that, you know, Trump will get reelected in 2020. So what, how do you see that life in the pursuit of happiness? Um, for the future, given what where we're at now as a nation, theologically, um, you know, as as a as a Christian church, um, I mean, you're a pastor, and you've been you behind the pulpit and, uh, and and whatnot, and so you know, I'm in the classroom, so I li- I like our both different perspectives, so I, that's why I'm asking you, you yeah. know, that 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 question. Well, I'm gonna say something now that's gonna sound a little bit of a contradiction to what I just said. Okay, because what I said about a role that can be played for the sake of reconciliation in the political space is I think simultaneously Mm -hmm. there is a need for citizens of the United States of America to enter into spaces like the political space to push the country and challenge the country to the ideals that it espouses. Okay. That though Mm -hmm. is not, necessarily primarily the role that i believe biblically theologically mm-hmm. a pastor like me is supposed to play okay all right uh i think first and foremost i'm supposed to speak in a way lead in a way operate in a way that puts the kingdom of god and its vision and its elements and its characteristics above um a ideology of American exceptionalism. Okay. Now, for those that might think that sounds borderline unpatriotic, mm-hmm. I want to say, well, first of all, you, you're probably not a pastor, so I get what you're <laughs> saying. But as a Christian pastor, I'm supposed to simultaneously respect and honor the nation that I'm in and a citizen of see it as a mission field, but I'm called mm-hmm. as a Christian pastor, theologian to lift higher the ideals and the biblical vision of the kingdom of God okay. above American exceptionalism. Yeah. Uh, so with that in mind, I, um, you know, I look at, the time in which we're in, where, where we are. Uh, and I go, well, as I read scripture, I'm not surprised. Okay. And unfortunately there have been many moments in scripture where, uh, instead of putting the kingdom of God 
and the elements of the kingdom of God, the the true good news of the gospel, which is yeah. the, the the people in bondage being liberated and the, the blind seeing and the year of Jubilee being proclaimed and uh, seeing a deliverance and a salvation that comes through an authentic understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen the church, instead of aggressively pursuing that, deciding that they would like to take some of that and interlink it with power and privilege in all the societal domains in the United States. And then it gets real muddled because I'm like, I don't, I don't know if it looks like you're more committed to um, a political party's ideology Mm -hmm. than you are um, the great commission or um, being a royal priesthood in a holy nation, hmm. actually unleashing what is depicted in the gospel of Matthew chapter 25, when the king brings all nations, the king of kings brings all nations, including the United States, mm-hmm. under him and starts separating them one from another, like uh, a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Yeah, And I feel like part of my job is to help the United States understand when they start smelling like a goat <laughs> and might get pushed on the goat side of the nations that are divided versus yeah. the sheep side. Yeah. And just because um, you have in God we trust on the money doesn't mean that the United States has the potential to smell and act like a goat, and the goat is the one that didn't feed the hungry, didn't clothe the naked, didn't see about the incarcerated, didn't welcome the stranger. Because uh, it, 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 Jesus said, look, the reason you're going to be on the sheep side is I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you came to see me. I was a stranger, mm. you welcomed me. I was sick, and you came to see about me and dealt with my sickness. And they said, when do we do that? He said, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so I just think it's sad than in aspects, I hope I'm not getting off topic. No, brother, you on it. There are aspects of the church, there are elements within what is called Christianity in America that thinks if you, if you talk like that, you're socialist, not you're, uh, you're deeply biblical. Yeah. Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not a, trying to be a proponent of socialism. I'm saying Matthew 25 says God is going to separate the nations like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goat. And the sheep side had an agenda for the incarcerated. And I'm talking about a transformative, empowering, compassionate, good news (laughs) agenda for the incarcerated, for, uh, the immigrant for the hungry, for the thirsty, for the naked, for the sick. And the the church Christians, because that's a kingdom agenda should hold the nation in which they operate as kingdom people accountable to that Matthew 25 vision. Hmm. Is this, is this, it's, it's my, that might set up, 
the discussion about, you know, if you want to get my opinion about the black pastors yes. around the table with President yes. Trump. Yes, yeah, let's hop right is, in. Is the pastor's job to push mm -hmm. in a respectful, honorable way political leaders, the leader of a nation, when it seems like that nation is smelling like a goat, whether that president is Democrat or Republican. Yeah. I think that the Bible calls pastors mm -hmm. to more than just sit around and tell a president how great they are. <laughs> I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat. I think I'm, I'm doing a disservice to scripture and I'm doing a disservice to my call if I'm in the presence of a mayor or a governor or a city council member or a president and all I can offer them is just mm. inflated thankfulness man like if i go into a room <laughs> as a pastor and i just say oh i'm so <laughs> thankful to be in the room oh i'm so thankful to be with you sir oh i'm so thankful that you even opened the door oh i'm so thankful that i got a press pass oh i'm so thankful that i have a name tag oh i'm so thankful oh thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you you know we, we could we could do that on the plantation as slaves oh thank you thank you thank you master for letting me pick this oh, cotton no. oh thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you that you didn't with yeah. me today oh Oh, thank you, thank oh, you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you didn't rape me today, Master. Oh, thank you. No, yeah. the, the, the yeah. vision yeah. for the black church and the black pastor was not to be thankful for marginalization and suffering yeah. and brokenness and dysfunction, yeah. but to actually um, be a voice, be a song, hmm. be a prayer that every part of the black church liturgy historically was about liberation. My God. I mean, every yeah. element of the black church mm. liturgy mm. screams liberation. Wow. Our prayers, our songs, our preaching, our offerings. Man. So if the offerings come in and it's not going into ministry initiatives of liberation, you are doing a disservice to the history of the black church. <laughs> Well, all right, man. So do you so you got these these pastors? They um I mean, I don't even know where you begin other than I mean, yeah, I I'd love to hear your initial thoughts as you were you've seen this, you've seen the full aspect. And for those of you who are listening, I'm going to put the, you know, in the show notes the full link and you have to see the one from the White House the uh, uh, YouTube channel. I mean, cuz it yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple other links in there as well, but yeah, you have these 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 cats that come up there, some of whom I know, I know some of which you know. Um I'm just curious, like, what does that mean? On one argument, one argument says, Well, isn't that what pastors are supposed to be doing? Aren't they supposed to be at the tables? They're quoting King, right? People have been quoting Dr. Luke Martin Luther King. Like, I'm a, I got an answer to that one. Okay. All right. Well, we'll hop in with that, man. What what's what well, first of all, I just want to remind people, you know, because you know, every once in a while you get new listeners to this show. I gotta remind yeah. people this show is called Profane Faith. That's right. So That's we, right. This is for those of you that aren't <laughs> African American, especially. This I when I listen to to Dr. Hodge's <laughs> show here, this is about brothers and sisters. If you've ever been with brothers and sisters in an urban right. African-American 
or Hispanic <laughs> living room, <laughs> right? Keeping it real, or in the there backyard. This is like two brothers right now in a conversation playing dominoes, yeah, having a conversation, yeah. So if so, so so please understand the content. Now now it's now what we talking about. This this is not you know first grade though now this don't 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 play us like you know like Denzel Washington said in Training Day this is checkers not chess right <laughs> but, right <laughs> no no he said this is chess not checkers did I say it right I think it was chess not checkers no, yeah this is chess not, not checkers. checkers yeah <laughs> that's what it was all right I gotta make sure I say that yeah, right yeah that's right that's right quarter. that's right all right so. Um, what I want to say is this, and again, I want people to hear me really, really well, mm -hmm. because I would say this, whether it's a Democrat yeah. president yeah. or Republican president, mm -hmm. as best I have understood, I was born in 1969, so there are people older than me that would know better if they really studied it. But as I read the writings, mm -hmm. the sermons, watch documentaries, read transcripts. Okay. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. met with presidents, and let's put it in perspective, when he was meeting with presidents, he was meeting with presidents that represented the Democrat Party. So let's not make, I mean, we can make this about Trump, but I'd rather for just right now, yeah. not make it about Trump, okay. not make it about Republican or Democrat, yeah. but just the principle of who a priest a prophet, a pastor should be when they are in the presence, in the space, at the table yeah. with a president, a governor. So one, I I don't I don't have evidence when Martin Luther King met with presidents of the United States that all he did was heap thankfulness on them. He had a clear-cut agenda to put before the most powerful person on the planet, some people say the President of the United States is. So, you know, I'm not one of those saying those pastors shouldn't have even met with the President. I don't, I don't think there's not a problem with if you're invited sure. by the President yeah. to, to go. I just go, I, I, I was just... And I say this with all due respect, because I, I, I don't know any of those pastors personally. I have met one of them that was in the room. I, I met one of the pastors. No, actually, there are one, two, three, three of the pastors that are in that room that I've actually met. Like I either met them at a pastor's gathering, shook their hand, mm -hmm. preached at the same conference as them. Uh, it just exchange pleasantries. Okay. And, yeah. and, and so with all due respect to their office, to their calling, I just don't understand why there wasn't an agenda and a respectful, honorable challenge made to the most influential person probably <laughs> on the planet yeah. With some concrete points around what prison reform could look like hmm. in this nation. Yeah. And the the verbiage around these new policies mm -hmm. 
that supposedly are in place. Yeah. That's right. already making a difference. Right. I never heard of them. And I'm saying that from the vantage point of two things. I am the former president and CEO of an urban missions organization that equips and resources the incarcerated to plant churches. In some cases, is giving them job and entrepreneurial skills hmm. while they're in prison right now, is supporting their holistic development while they're incarcerated, and even has programs for them once they get out to reduce the recidivism rate. Hmm. So I'm speaking from the experience of, I was president and CEO of an organization that was was programmatically and theologically engaged in prison reform. Okay. And I'm speaking as a co-senior campus pastor mm -hmm. of a multi-site church that includes campuses, mm -hmm. sites in Folsom men and women's prison. Okay. So I'm going I, this 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 whole thing of being around prison systems and juvenile detention centers, being engaged actively as a pastor in the criminal justice system is not something I'm just waxing on. <laughs> this is something that I've been involved in right. in in one form or another for a, a while, for for a long time. I've looked at the different models. I've looked at the prison fellowship model. I've looked at other model of what Awana is doing. So I was like, man, I wish there there would be. I wish that there was a conference, a summit. <laughs> I wish that the president of the United States would have would have had some kind of summit where a thousand pastors faith leaders could have went and it yeah. could have been breakout sessions and seminars and panels and presentations and, 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 and out of that summit would have been concrete, concrete strategies and, and policies that would actually bring about prison reform. Hmm. But when a prophet, um, I don't know, um, loses the sense yeah. of that of that call. And you know, I don't know, maybe some of the pastors would say, hey, that's not my role. I'm not a pro I'm just saying I couldn't go unless I went prayed up and prepared to be a prophetic voice on some level and from my experience present something concrete to to respectfully challenge the president. Yeah. Respectfully challenge a governor mm -hmm. or a mayor. I mean, hey, let me, I'll give you an example of this. Um, I'm in Sacramento, mm -hmm. and uh, less than a year ago, Stefan Clark yeah. was shot and killed by two police officers uh, in his grandmother's backyard. Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't want to get into all the, the, the deep issues there because, you know, investigations going on. I mean, I have some opinions uh, on... on, on um, about 
that incident, but I wasn't there. And I want to be respectful because there are people that are connected to the family of Stefan Clark that attend the church I pastor and the police chief of Sacramento, just so that I can put all the cards on the table. Yeah, put them on. You know, attends the, the church I pastor. Okay. But I had a chance to speak mm-hmm. at a open town meeting and speak before the mayor and the city council of Sacramento. The district attorney of Sacramento County was in the room and the police chief was in the room. Damn. And I had a chance to speak. Now I could have got up there and just spent, I only, they only, only get three minutes. Yeah. Right. I was, I was wondering if you, they so, gave me, so I get yeah. three minutes to speak. Now. All right. So, so I think you hear what I'm going. I could have used my three minutes and just thanked the mayor for letting me speak. I could have spent my whole three minutes. Mr. Mayor, I'm so thankful and grateful that you would even let me come to the podium, to the microphone. And city council members, I just want to thank each and every one of you for letting me be here. And you know what? I'm thankful that you're on the city council. And mayor, I'm thankful that you're the mayor. And police chief, I'm thankful that you're the police chief. And you know what? I'm thankful, the district attorney, that you're the district. And then I would have ran out of the three minutes. I only had three minutes. So what I said was this. Look, I understand, Mr. Mayor, city council, chief, you you have to give leadership and serve a very diverse population. I also understand that you have to provide leadership to a very divided city. And there are incidents, things that erupt that cause us to be even more divided. So I know it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job. So I'm praying for you. Yeah. I, I'm sensitive to that. But I, but you know what? I know what it's like because I pastor a multicultural church. It might not be at the level of your responsibility, but I know the responsibility and the weight. Right, right. But I do know this. I spent a lot of time at my grandma's house. Hmm. I played there. I cut grass there. I was probably disciplined there a couple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, but never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I would die in my grandma's backyard. Hmm. I had to say something, Dan. Yes. In that moment to somehow check. And I, I think there was, now, was I as bold as black lives matter thought i should have been i don't know i don't they they came after me they were able to say what they said and okay. i didn't have an issue with what they said i mean that's they got, they got the right to say it i'm just saying i'm just giving you that example to yeah say, i think there's a way to be respectful but say something to those in power yeah that challenges them right that pushes them yeah and so i hope that that gives some some insight into my thoughts about yeah. African-American and, and Hispanic urban pastors that met with our president. I, I just think it doesn't have to be uh, just be respectful, thankful and support and <laughs> right. firm and lift up yeah. or go in there and and yell and shout and call the president racist and blah, 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 blah. I think that you can go in there and you can be respectful and be prophetic and push or challenge on some level or we 
we disrespect the legacies of biblical prophets like Nathan. We disrespect Jeremiah and Nehemiah and Amos. We, we disrespect Esther. Esther said, I'm going to meet with the king. I need y'all to fast for me three days. Yeah. And then I'm going. Now, I could die. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to speak to the king. And I just wish those pastors... I'm saying this as lovingly and respectfully as I can. I, I'm not attacking nobody. I'm just saying I wish somebody would have been like Esther. Yeah. And before they went to meet, would have said, pray for me because I'm getting ready to go meet with the president. Yeah. Pray for me. Yeah. Because lives are at stake. When Esther went to speak to the king, lives were her her people could die. There were laws in place. Mm-hmm. That Haman had helped put a law in place that was detrimental to her people. And she said, fast and pray for me. I'm about to risk my life and go speak to the king on behalf of my oppressed people. Yeah, man. So... So let me ask this then, as we're thinking about these pastors, I mean, there's a couple of questions that come to mind. What was, I mean, I know the stated purpose. I mean, well, you know, one news agency, I think it was ABC, called it a meeting of urban past or, or no, excuse me. Was it urban or inner city? But the, the, both of those terms were thrown around. I can't remember which agency, news agency said it. But which is still cold word for black in many spaces. Exactly. Um, in all honesty, there are several of them on that are not even necessarily in the quote unquote city or inner city pastor. So I'm wondering, so there's the stated thing, but what, what was the deeper meaning of that, you know, for, for Trump to have these many, you know, majority black men, I mean, there was some women in the room, uh, King's niece was, was, was in the room, right? It was like yeah. King's niece. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I'm wondering what is the deep, deeper purpose of that? And then what is that? Does that reflect? We've been talking about the black church all week in leadership. Does that reflect on the black church? Because you know, because the, the the narrative is going to be: see, Trump is is for you people. I mean, I don't know what you guys keep calling him a racist. He's he's for you. He's he's inviting these people. He's giving them money. What do you, what do you think about some of those those nuances that'll come out of come out of that? Well, I, I want to answer it this way. Um, first way I want to answer it is by saying, I know what it's like. In my personal experience, there have been times I've been in predominantly white evangelical spaces, and I initially thought that I was invited into that space to push and challenge and move that organization deeper into areas of compassion, mercy, and justice, racial righteousness and reconciliation. Um, a deeper discovery of the authentic Jesus, the biblical essential elements of the kingdom of God. And then I get there and find out that the people there are too thin skinned for that. Cause as soon as you start talking about the issues and the things you thought you were invited to talk about, they're, they're offended. They're offended. Like I've been in spaces where, I mean, I, I wasn't calling anybody a racist. I just went in there and said, look, we need to talk about white privilege. We need to talk about um, marginalization. Yeah. We need to talk about, and people start getting mad. 
are you right. calling me a racist? And right, I'm like, right, right, right. So, so I think it, it, there are times, unfortunately, when I've been in t- experiences where my white brothers and sisters, I thought they wanted me to keep it real with them and <laughs> yeah. challenge them. But what they really wanted was for me to come and say they're okay. They wanted so that they could say Ephraim Smith said I'm okay. So the question <laughs> yeah. to this administration and maybe future administrations, maybe this has always been the question, Dan, hmm. to political power. Yeah. Is do you really want people that represent or carry the same skin tone? as oppressed, marginalized people to truly lay on the table before you the problems and the needed solutions? Or do you really just want affirmation over things that you haven't done and have no experience in? Hmm. I, as best I can tell you, um, the current administration is not filled with people that have lived on inner city, predominantly black, <laughs> predominantly yeah. brown, yeah. under-resourced, you know, c- communities. If you understand what I'm saying, I mean, right. I, 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 I'm, I'm going okay. The, and again, I, people need to hear hear this well on both sides. It, without calling a name can i can i at least ask you well unless you know what it's like to be in a predominantly black under-resourced public school Mm -hmm. where the books don't look pristine and they're tore up and you and and the teachers have come from outside your community and already have stereotypes about you and you've watched businesses leave your community and banks leave your community and you see more liquor stores and billboards for cigarettes and and you you see more uh, cash and check places you don't see the Wells Fargo or the Bank of America you don't see a, a Whole Foods, you know, you don't see a Lunds <laughs> yeah. or a Byerly's in your neighborhood. Uh, have you walked those? Did you grow up in that? Do you know what that's like? And right. then when you get into <clears throat> a seat of power and you're over the Department of Education yeah. or you're over, uh, uh, if you're the Attorney General mm-hmm. of the nation and you're looking at laws and policies and yeah. ideologies that affect people you don't even know in neighborhoods that you never lived in, mm-hmm. that you never had to experience the underside of those systems. Then what you need is not affirmation and praise. You need a humility that says, you know what? I don't know your experience. So I'm, I'm needful for people to come and push me and challenge me. I, Dan, have never been homeless. So I don't need people to come to me Mm -hmm. and praise me on my homeless theology. (laughs) What I need, (laughs) maybe, is people that have been homeless and have found their way out to teach me. Mm -hmm. 
But that means, that assumes I'm a humble, teachable leader in a position of power that yet wants to learn and grow. Or it could be we're in a season of immature leadership where we're just like bullies on a playground. <laughs> and and we don't, we don't want to learn. We just want to fight. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's where we are right now. Hmm. Man, 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 man. What um what do you see as the future? What do you see as the future? Ten years. Ten years from now, what do you see? Well, um there is the possibility, you and I have talked about this, mm-hmm. that ten years from now we could be on the other side of a more divided, more hostile, more fearful, more prejudiced, more uncivil nation. As best I can tell you, there's a significant number of liberals and conservatives, independents, people of various walks of faith, people that voted for Clinton or Trump that are agreeing that we are in a unhealthy, immature, uncivil, divisive, demonizing culture. And it's, and it's exhausting and it's painful and it's heavy. And it feels like instead of people working hard, like the fire, fighters in California to put the fires out. Oh, yeah. There are people pouring gasoline on the fires daily. Yes. And I'm concerned that if we don't demand a more mature, humble, servant, visionary leadership at every level in our political spaces if we continue to be okay with immature followership yeah yeah and continue to promote people based on celebrity and charisma and if we think they look good or not or if they were a box office smash at the movie theater, (laughs) or whether they had the best reality show ratings. If that's the way we elevate people, and if we decide, as long as liberal or conservative, as long as they promote two social issues I agree with, I don't care about anything else. If we remain that superficial and immature, our nation... Um, will be more divided than it is now, more uncivil, more hostile, more racially divided, more heated than it is right now. Or uh, my prayer and my hope is that 10 years from now, um, we will be rebuilding burned bridges. We will be repairing uncivil, divided relationships. Mm. And somebody will rise up and present a vision to this nation of what it truly means Hmm. to be a country made up of multiple ethnicities 
and cultures and so-called races committed to believing if the underclass and the poorest of the poor are empowered and if they have access, you don't have to do everything for them, mm-hmm. but if there is access. Yeah. I, I once heard a, a brother I respect greatly from World Impact, Dr. Don Davis, say, the poor and the broken should get the same opportunities to fail that the privileged and the wealthy have had. Wow. Some of the wealthiest people in this country had multiple opportunities to fail before they finally, you know, found their success. Yeah. Found their prosperity. But they, I mean, for some reason, privileged people, people that live in, in resource places, they get, man, I lived uh, in the outer East Bay, in the Bay Area of California, in, a, in an area where most of the people were well-to-do. Mm-hmm. And I witnessed suburban kids that don't look like me do all kinds of crazy stuff. Using meth, yeah, skipping yeah. school, yeah, stealing stuff. But because they were in a wealthy area, and can I just be real, because they were white, yeah, they got second and third chances. Of course, yeah. My African-American daughter was with an African-American male friend just going to the movies one night and got pulled over by the police and asked what they were doing in that neighborhood. And when she said, we live in this community, they looked at her like that couldn't be true. Right. So we're still in a society where black and brown people, and if you're black and brown in an under-resourced community, in many cases, you get one chance to do right. Yes. And if not, yes. you are handed over yes. for a long time to the prison system. Yeah. Or you're left for dead. Right. But we're still in a nation that if you have the lightest of skin and you live in a wealthy neighborhood, you might shoot up people in a school and they stop you. No, you might go into church and yeah. shoot up a bunch of black people. Right. And I hear they might take you to Burger King before they go take it to the police station. Man. And what's sad is there are some people that might hear this podcast Mm -hmm. and refuse to believe what I just said. (laughs) Oh, man. I hope not, but you are probably right. Well, not this podcast, because people that listen to this, they down. (laughs) The people that listen to this podcast probably said, Ephraim was soft. He should have went harder than that. What was oh, Ephraim Smith? Man. Come on, man! You playing? You should. You should have went on in. You should. What are you doing, man? You being a reconciler? I'm tired of that. Oh man, there might be somebody saying that. There might be, but I mean, I mean, but I think no. But I appreciate your perspective. I mean, which is what you know the whole podcast is about. It's about to get different perspectives. I mean, um, in fact, I want to get Anthony Penn back. You know, because he's got he's, oh, he's got man. some Anthony Penn. Yeah, he's got some amazing some amazing thoughts and, and processes. Um. Yeah. I mean, as we're, you know, finishing up, want to be careful of time here and everything. But as we're finishing up, man, what are some what are some of the things that you're, um, dare I say, hopeful of moving, you know, moving forward? Just, you know, some of the things you're maybe you're working on, maybe some things you're, you know, you're about to do and whatnot. You know what? I am. I am hopeful. Because I meet so many emerging leaders. 
uh, and, and leaders that are a little bit older that genuinely want to know um, how to change and transform themselves hmm. so that they can be a vehicle of transformation. Okay. And change. Yeah. And so every time I meet a humble person that wants to look into themselves first before they criticize and judge the other, mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. Okay. I'm hopeful. Um, I get grieved when I meet people that are arrogant and prideful and all they want to do is demonize the opponent, whether that's the ideological opponent, you know, the political opponent, the theological opponent, yeah. um, the, the whatever they are and this group isn't opponent that that's when I, that's when my heart grieves. I, I'm hopeful when people say, Hey, my theology may be conservative, but I want to have authentic relationship with the LGBT community, or I, um, I don't understand where they're coming from. And, and there's a lot of anger, but you know, I really want to sit in a room and hear what black lives matter has to say. And I'm not going to say a word. Hmm. I'm just going to listen and be a sponge and soak in. You know what? I am not Republican. <laughs> But I guess I'll go over there and I'll just learn and figure out what is going on. You know what I mean? I think when people are, are like that, when people are, are willing to say, you know, I think that's what's going to take. I think, I think there are some police chiefs around the country that are going to have to be willing to go into communities and hear the rage and hear the pain and be yelled at. Nobody's going to get hurt. Just, just absorb it. I mean, yeah. I think, I think we could reduce violence and, and we could deal with the divisiveness and the divisions in our nation. If we would just absorb the cries, the hurts, the pain, especially of the oppressed and the marginalized, if we would just hear the cry because hmm. God does. I know yeah. I'm going over time, but I mean, no, no, no. this is what going. I'm thinking. God, when, when Cain killed Abel, okay. God went to Cain. Mm -hmm. And at first Cain tried to act like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about, God? What, 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 what happened? <laughs> right, right, right. He's like, basically, I'm paraphrasing. God's like, you killed your brother Abel. His blood His... cries from the ground. That's deep, yeah. Yeah. And so I just think if God is willing to listen to the cries of spilled blood. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's the same God that also said to Moses, I've heard the cries of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. I've heard their cries of oppression. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him, I sent you to let them go. It got, you know, you, you you could get to Jesus where it said Jesus wept in the Gospel of John chapter eleven. You know where he's weeping? He was weeping with two sisters whose brother Lazarus had died. Yeah. God absorbs the cries of the oppressed, the marginalized, those deeply grieved. And I just think you know, the privileged and the powerful don't always. I'm going back to our former point. Yeah. My my issue is. 
people we're we're spending so much time stroking and affirming the powerful mm-hmm. when God didn't it didn't seem like Jesus did it seemed like Jesus spent more time hearing the words, the cries, the dilemmas, putting himself in the proximity to be touched by the left for dead, the disease, those with evil spirits, those broken, marginalized, oppressed at the well. Mm. Mm. I want to be where God's at. There you go. That's a good Even word. Even if it's profane. There you go. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good word, man. That's a good word. Um, Man, that's a good word. That's a good place. That's a good place to to pause man um where might people find you where might people come at you what what new book you got coming out oh man well you know my current book still still get that it's called killing us softly okay yep 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 right side up people in an upside down world all right so i encourage people to to get killing us softly and um you know uh well uh, also i would say look for you know follow me on twitter ephraim smith ef R-E-M Smith. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. On Facebook, uh, yeah. Follow me on Instagram, Mm -hmm. you know, and then through that, you are going to learn more in the next, oh, you know, well, depending on, you know, when you're hearing this. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, You're going to, this fall, uh, just let me put it this This way. This fall, yeah. It'll be this fall. 2018. Yes. You will learn more about the official launch of influential yes so yes. please so so you'll uh so that that will all launch fall 2018 uh, but if you're following me you, you know following Ephraim smith on those social media platforms uh you'll 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 be in the right position mm-hmm. to receive all that man that's great man i'm i'm i am really excited um about that i think that's a great thing and then you know when you get the link send it to me um, for your website or whatever. Yes, um, yes. Please do that. I'll put that in the show notes for those of you listening. Highly recommend I'll put that the, the book in the show notes as well, man, because this is good stuff, man. And and I will encourage y'all to follow Brother Ephraim on, on, on particularly Facebook. I love your posts. I'll just be scrolling sometimes and you'll just have like this little prophetic word. I don't, you know, I don't know how sometimes, I don't know if you, I don't get into Facebook debates anymore man so i don't know how that goes for you man but i do oh, appreciate you yeah. now i just don't say nothing back that, I exactly just, i just figure i'm saying what i'm saying and i don't i used to i used to get caught up in the web i know of i did debate. Yeah. and then i found out that most of the people that want to debate you have like seven friends on facebook right or like on twitter they have like yeah 12 followers right <laughs> and then i'm going why am i debating right the 12 follower dude mm-hmm He's pimping my social media platform. Right. So he can get his voice out there. Yep. Yep. Crazy. Them trolls, man. Them trolls. Somebody's like, man, don't feed the trolls. So I yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I know what you mean. Well, brother, thank you so much for taking time to come on, man. Oh man, I got so much respect for you, man. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> well, thank thank you. you, man. For I, I really appreciate the role you've played in developing a a theological framework. And and given so much uh, voice and respect and platform to young men and women that started all the way back, they were young men and women in the 70s, hmm. and you've stayed with the emerging generation and and give them voice through your preaching, through your speaking, through your hmm. writing, through your scholarship, and you you have pioneered something. I mean, I remember when 
there was something big about, you know, Christian hip hop. And, you know, and yeah. I remember the, I remember the early days of D-Boy Rodriguez and T-Bone and hey, T-Bone Soldiers for Christ and A1 yeah. Swift. L.A. Symphony, man. L.A. Symphony and Grits. Yeah. And then, I, and, Grits. Then, and then I remember the beginnings of conferences, like what became Flavor Fest. And I remember the beginnings right. of what became what was called hip hop churches. Yeah. And for you to take it to the next level into the academy. Man, it's I, I just really appreciate and and I know it's not easy. You take a lot of hits, but I just I respect your craft and your call. Well, thank you, man. That means a lot. Wow. Thank you very much, brother. Appreciate it, man. No doubt. All right.